Good evening to you. My name is Josh Cannon. Over the course of doing this podcast, I have been able through one way or another to reach out to people who have appeared or worked on the show Unsolved Mysteries. Some of our listeners already know this and have enjoyed the previous full episodes me and Mike have done, where I intersperse the interview into the usually hour and 45 minute long podcast. I felt, though, like these interviews are so good and so rare that I was able to talk to somebody who appeared on Unsolved Mysteries that they deserve their own place in our podcast catalog. So this is a series of just the interviews that I did with the people who lived through the murders, hauntings, conspiracy, and even someone who worked on the set of Unsolved Mysteries. I apologize in advance for the varying audio quality in each of these interviews. Most of the people I interviewed could only talk over the phone, so I did the best with what I had. For this interview, I talked to Suzanne Kelsey of the Kelsey House Hauntings. This is one of the better haunted house stories on Unsolved Mysteries, and Suzanne was the one who lived through it. She elaborates more on what was presented on the Unsolved Mysteries segment, and she also explains how they were first contacted by Unsolved Mysteries. Here is that interview. I, I've, I've went back and I've rewatched the segment several times. Now, um, Susie, is it okay if I call you Susie? Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't, I'm from the South, so sometimes they want me to call Mr. and Mrs. and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, oh. all that stuff. So. <laughs> no. No. My mom always told me, she's like, I don't want you guys calling me, I don't want you to say yes, ma'am, because it makes me feel old. That's what my mom always said, but, uh, I, you know, you never know. Um, yeah, this is true. So, uh, how did you, how did you originally even, um, were you a fan of the show Unsolved Mysteries? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? How did that even start? Um, well... Besides the fact that the house that we bought had been, um, we had had all kinds of stuff going on with it. And um, we decided one point in time our neighbor knew about it. And this is where kind of the whole thing started was our neighbor worked for the local paper and knew about our ghost and our story and wanted to do a Halloween edition about our ghost in Fish Springs. And so she did an article on it. And then after that, we started getting phone calls from all kinds of different newspapers wanting to do more stories on it. And eventually we ended up with um, pretty much all of the paid newspapers in the state of Nevada doing stories on it. And we were learning more about the history of our house through the research that they were doing. Um, the Las Vegas Review Journal did a big thing in their, their Nevadan section of their paper which is the historical one, mm -hmm. had heard about it, and they interviewed us. And we told them, you know, the story of what had happened and everything. And then they actually started looking into it. They had some, went through some, some of the assessor's offices or whatever and traced it down to find out who the original owner of the house was, who originally had it built um, in Virginia City, which is where it was, um, where it was built. And... We found out a lot more information from that article, from their research about the original owner and all more of the history on the house before we bought it. And we were joking because a lot of the newspaper, one article would trigger another one, somebody else would call us. We ended up with National Enquirer wanted to do something on it. They took the story but never ran it. Then uh, a little while later, and, and my husband had said that, he goes, God, what's next, you know? the Inquirer, and sure enough, they called, but they didn't run the story. And then a little while later, another newspaper called, and it was um, World Weekly News, which was a sister newspaper of the Inquirer. And they ran it, and it went national. And they actually had us, they had FedEx come and check out the photo and the negative and everything. And they ran it through a guy that used to work for the Pentagon um, for... He worked for the Pentagon for seven years under computerized photographic analysis and verified the authenticity of the negative and the picture and everything like that. And so we kept, it kept kind of going from joke to joke every time somebody would call wanting to do the story. And then Jim, you know, my husband says, well, what's next, you know? And so we get a phone call. We had moved to California. We had already thought we had the house sold. Um, we had some people trying to buy it, and we moved to California. 
and we got a call from um, from our niece who lived in Hillsburg. Somebody was trying to reach her because the local paper in Hillsburg had decided to run an article because it was my husband's cousin worked for the newspaper there. And so Unsolved Mysteries, um, Stan Br- Stanley Brown worked for Cosgrove, Cosgrove Muir Productions. He used to go subscribe to small town papers and look for stories of interest that they would then research for Unsolved Mysteries. So she called us and said that this guy had called us. He was going to be calling. And uh, she'd given him our phone number. And my husband answers the phone. And the guy says, this is Stanley Brown from Unsolved Mysteries. And he looks at me and he goes, it's for you, hon. And I go, (laughs) really, who is it? He goes, Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, my gosh. So we kind of went through this long chain of, you know, it went, it went through World Weekly News, which was a national newspaper. It went, it pretty much went everywhere. And then it came back to our local town, which is wh- or where we were living then, in Healdsburg, um, which is where they caught the story on it. And they came and interviewed us there to see if they wanted to run the story. And we didn't figure it would go anywhere. And sure enough, they called back a couple weeks later and said, we want to do your show, <laughs> you know, so... So uh, you're you're the first you're the first people that I talked to that's actually uh, were were involved in you know one of these haunting kind of stories. Uh, I've talked to yeah. a few people from the show already. I don't know how they keep finding our stuff. It's on the internet. I guess we're the only podcast that, that really focuses on uh, unsolved mysteries. The show, but um, so like how did that process work as far as um, when you went in and in I mean I'm, I'm assuming you met John Cosgrove and Terry Moyer and all that and uh, did did no, they. No. We met, we met with, like I said, Stanley Brown was the one who interviewed us. He's the researcher for the show. Oh, uh, okay. And then I was working at, it was funny, I was working at Hewlett-Packard down in Roner Park at the time after they decided to do the show, and that's how I found out. I got a call at Hewlett-Packard where I worked, and this guy says, um, I'm Dan Gomez. He says, I'm the director. He says, we want to do your show, and he called me up at work. And I had to go to my supervisor's phone, and he says, "He says, yeah, we want to do your, we want to do your story, and they wanted to set it up for time and everything." And I mean, it was the most, it was hysterical because the guy is telling us, he's saying, you know, from what we had told um, his researcher about it, the different things he was asking me, certain things, and what different parts of the story they wanted to cover. And you know, we had told him about when we'd be in bed and hear this noise like footsteps and all this other noises and stuff. And so he asked me, he says, he says, yeah, so we've figured out about three or four aspects of your story that we want to do. And then he goes, so have you ever done a bed scene on TV? It's <laughs> like, what? <laughs> so explain that from our conversation with the, the um, researcher, that was part of what they wanted to do for the show, do a thing of what happened like when we'd wake up in the night and hear footsteps or hear the noises and stuff like that and so it was you know it turned out to be a a really fun thing it was like a week vacation you know when they actually did the thing and the the guys and crew and everything were just great it was you know you couldn't have planned a better vacation so so you actually were you actually participated in the reenactment then yes my husband and i did the girls our daughters didn't because by then, they were a lot older. Oh, okay. Um, they, had, they hired two little actresses out of Reno, because the house is, in Gardner, is outside of Gardnerville, Nevada. So they had a crew from, they hired casting, they hi- cast two little girls to play Denny and Jennifer in the reenactment of what happened. Our son, by then, was eight years old, or seven years old. No, he was eight, take it back. Anyway, and so they hired a baby as the, uh, to play him as the baby because um, when they did the reenactment on him, it was of me taking pictures of him when he was seven right. years old when the picture of the ghost showed up. So they had a guy playing, you know, the guy with his son there as the, you know, that we got that baby to use, you know, they had cast the baby too for to play our son. Yeah, and just, to, just to recap. and I were actually in the reenactment, yeah. Just to recap for the uh, listeners, uh, the picture you're referring to is there was a scene where um, you were snapping pictures of your, at that point, newborn son, and when the pictures were actually developed, there was a photo of a man in the pictures, and you had not taken 
a picture of a man, but he just happened right. to be so, in there. Yeah. So what happened if you, I don't know, I don't know how old you are, what kind of, if you're familiar with photography and stuff, but back then a roll of film had 24 pictures on it. Right. And the camera that I had used those flash cubes that had, you know, that it took, I think, six pictures on each. So the flash cubes took, you know, there was 18 flash was all I had for a roll of 25 pictures. Okay? So I had taken the first 18 with flash, and I was getting ready to go back from my leave of my maternity leave of absence, and I wanted to hurry up and get this roll of film developed so I'd have the pictures to take back when I returned to work. And so I propped our son up in the infant seat on the couch or love seat next to a lamp, figuring, okay, I've got to, I should have enough, enough light for the rest of the pictures to come out. And each one of the pictures that I took had our son with a different stuffed animal next to him in his infancy with him. And I took them and I went, got, got the pictures taken. The last six were taken without flash. And so I went to pick the pictures up in a couple of days, and my sister worked at the photo department of Rayleigh's um, shopping center. So when I went to pick to get the pictures, she was working there, and I opened them up, and she goes, oh, they have the baby, and let me see them. So I opened them up, and the very top picture, which was always the way it went, was the last picture on the film was the first one on the top, the way they developed it. And so... Um, I opened the thing, and here's a picture of this man. And it's like, wait a minute, these aren't my pictures. Hmm. I don't know who these are. And she goes, are you sure? And I flipped to the next one, and I said, well, yeah, the rest of them, this, the rest of them are Scotty, but, you know, I don't know who this is, this man. And we were joking and saying, oh, well, um, you know, she says, oh, maybe it's Samuel, you know. And I said, yeah, right, you know, we kind of joked about it and stuff. But... Um, I started, I started checking, I had her check how they actually developed the film to see if they ran it some, through some kind of processing thing with other roles back to back that maybe it could have um, overlapped in processing from somebody else's film. And she checked with them and the way they processed it, they said, no, we do one roll at a, film, at a time. If that picture, you know, if it's there, it's your picture. And I'm thinking, well, still, I that picture was supposed to have been of our son in, at seven weeks old, and I went, took him to work with me the following couple of days when I went back to work, and we had a photo lab at the place where I worked, and I asked them to check it out, and they blew up the negative and were trying to look to see if there was anything that could tell them what was going on, and they couldn't find out anything, and so we were looking at it, and somebody asked me, they said, well, you saw the picture, but is it on your negative? And I said, well, I never really looked. Um, you know, at this, at this time, this was before I had them run it through that. And uh, sure enough, it was there. And the way it worked was that the first um, of the sets of, the, they had this 24 roll of film, had six sets of little clips of the, the film, where each one had four, it had one through four, then five through eight, and on like that. Well, the last six pictures were the last six that were taken without flash. And on those last two strips, the very last strip of four was blank. The one before that had, of uh, the four pictures on that, were had the last two pictures that I took of my son, then the first one that I took without flash was blank, and the second one I took without flash had this man on it. And then the last four were blank. So it was definitely on my same strip of film that had my actual son's pictures that were taken with flash. So I know it was on my film. But the fact that there was nobody there other than my son in his infancy when I took that picture was what really made us believe that that could have been Samuel. Um, our, our other daughter, Jennifer, was the one who, from the time she was like two years old, was psychic and was always telling us predictions, things that were going to happen, um, or things that she told us were going to happen. And sometimes there was other events that were scheduled that we knew what she was saying couldn't be true that would turn out to be true. And she was always telling us stuff that was going to happen, you know, from the time she was two and, you know, for the next few years and stuff. And so when we bought this house and moved it out, 
and all this stuff started happening, a gal I worked with, was always, I was always telling her at work, you know, about weird things that were happening that couldn't be explained away and that something was going on in our house. And so she had told me that her husband was psychic and that him and his family had always communicated, um, you know, without having to talk. They always knew when everybody was okay. They didn't have to telephone to do this and stuff. And so she says, well, he can tell you if you've got something out there, you know, if there's something going on. Because, um, you know, this was, this was before our son was born. And so she was the one who, over Thanksgiving weekend, before our son was born, or a couple years earlier, um, he had told us that we did have a ghost, that his name was Samuel, that he wasn't there to hurt anybody, but he was there because of our daughter, Jennifer, and the fact that she was sensitive to things, and that he was just there to watch over them, the kids. And so when the event of the picture taken when our son was born, we had moved out of that house. We thought we had it sold. We'd moved into town where it'd be closer to the hospital when I was pregnant with him. And the same daughter who was psychic, after he was born, had told us that he had moved into town with us. And I said, oh, no, he lived, you know, ghosts live in old houses, you know. They don't move into track homes and stuff like that, you know. I was trying to tell her. And she says, no, he moved in with us. She, she had spent the night at a friend's house down the block, and she said that he came there and kind of rescued her. And I'm thinking, yeah, I think you're really, you know, I'm kind of like, you're really overblowing this whole thing. But two weeks after she told me that he had moved into town with us was when I took this picture, and he showed up on the film. And the psychic who had originally, um, a couple years earlier, told us who the ghost was and the reason he was there, they had moved from Nevada back to Bemidji, Minnesota. And I was able to contact them through a relative that still worked with me. And uh, they contacted them, and uh, he called me back a couple of days. And I said, tell, you know, I told their son, I said, tell your dad to call me, tell him it's about Samuel. They'll know what I'm talking about. So they called me back a couple of days later when they got home and said that, um, they said, he goes, so what's Sam up to these days? And so I told them. And so the guy who was the psychic who had originally told us who he was, he said, he said, of course. He said, you told Jennifer that he didn't move into town with you, and this was his way of letting you know that he was there for the new baby as well as the previous kids that he was, that I told you years ago, he was watching over. He wasn't there to hurt anybody, just to watch over the kids. And he said, and you didn't believe he moved in, so this was his way of letting you know that he was still with you. That it wasn't because of the house, that it was because of Jennifer. And so we thought, okay. And then he, then he really blew my mind because then he said, um, so what does he look like? And I said, well, I said, he's got kind of a, you know, he's kind of balding. He's got like a mustache. And I was trying to think of the word long johns because it looks like he was wearing like the old-fashioned long johns. And he goes, um, and I was trying to think of the word. I said, he's wearing, and he goes, is he wearing a nightshirt? And I go, well, yeah, I guess it could possibly be. I said, I was trying to think of the word long john. And I go, why? How did you know? And he goes, never mind. It doesn't matter. So he knew what he was wearing before, and, and he was in Bemidji, Minnesota on the phone with me. Now you're talking about um, you're talking about Daniel Martin, right? Right, Daniel okay. Martin, yeah. And so you know, so he was right again, and um, you know, and <laughs> so you know, it kind of went on from there. And like I said, then you know, then the, all the stuff started hitting. And but we had had a lot of incidents at our house when we first bought this old house and moved it out there. My husband and my dad. Um, were fixing the house. We had to, they had to build on the top eight-foot section of the roof that had been taken off to move it out there. And they were reworking things and plumbing, and they'd go to have lunch at my dad's house across the field, and they'd come back, and the tools would be in different rooms than where they were working with them, and they'd have to go searching the house for the tools that disappeared. And after we moved in, we'd have our thermostat would turn up to 95, um, and we'd notice it was getting hot in the house. We couldn't figure out. And the and thermostat was high up on the wall where neither of our girls at that time were big enough to reach it. And there were a couple of times when um, 
I would be cooking pork ribs. <laughs> and be outside and come in and check them, and the, the oven was turned up to 550 all the way. And this happened like two or three different times that I was that I was cooking the same thing um, over the you know over time and stuff. It ha the same incident happened, so I don't know if it had any you know real correlation or anything. But but that was you know that was weird. And then this one morning when we heard um, footsteps, or I heard you know footsteps going up the stairs. Um, it was the weekend before Thanksgiving. And we had to work the Saturday before, you know, to get the four-day weekend off the following week at Thanksgiving. And um, the alarm had gone off, and I didn't have to get right up. I had about 15 minutes before I had to get up. So I was awake, and I heard footsteps coming down the stairs, because usually every morning, Jennifer, who was about three at the time, or, yeah, she was about three or four at the time anyway, she would come down the stairs, and you could count the stairs, and when she got to the bottom stairs, she'd holler at me and she'd go, Mom, I want to drink a water. And so I counted the steps as it came down, and I waited for her at the bottom of the stairs to tell me she wanted to drink water. And she didn't say anything, so then I heard the footsteps go back upstairs and go back over into her room, and I thought, oh, well, she must have decided she didn't want to drink water this time. And so when I finally got up, I went upstairs to get the kids up, and Jennifer was still tucked in bed. And I woke her up, and I thought, well, that's really weird. And how did you get in bed with, get out of bed without untucking yourself? And so anyway, um, I tried to wake her up, and she says, Mommy, she says, um, she, I said, she says, a boy came by. I saw a boy. And I said, you saw a boy? And she said, yeah. And I said, no, you were dreaming. She says, no. Um, she said, a man came by me. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, I said, well, you must have been dreaming. And she says, no. Um, no, he came by my bed and was standing by my bed. And I said, well, what did he look like? And she said, I don't know. Like, she couldn't describe him. And so I go back downstairs, and I'm thinking, okay, so she's seeing somebody that correlates with us here in the footsteps going back up to her bedroom. So I told my husband. And that was at the time when that finally happened was when I went to work that day, and I told my coworker that, something was definitely going on and that's when she you know initiated the conversation about that her husband would be able to meet you know find out who our ghost was and stuff and so you know like I said uh, um, the following week she told me she said oh yeah Danny met your met your ghost and by the way his name is Samuel and stuff and so that's how that but like I said there were all these things that were always happening and stuff at the house and she said he did tell him she said, you may not hear from him now because he let him know that he is letting us know he was there was scaring us. And uh, so it was like things did quiet down. So we were kind of said, okay, or supposedly we have a ghost and his name is Samuel. And Danny told him to kind of back off because he's scaring us. And so things did quiet down for quite a while. And it was just um, after our – so we eventually, like, when I got pregnant, things quieted down, and there was just once in a while there were little things that just to let us know he was still there. And then a couple of years later when I was pregnant with our son, when, like I said, we moved into town, we thought we had the house go, we moved into town, and all of that happened with the picture. Well, the people who were renting our house ended up, we ended up having to boot them out. And now, are these the Robinsons? The no, 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 no. These were some other people that were renting it when I was pregnant with Scotty. So we moved back into the house again. We we went ahead and moved back when Scotty was about nine months old. And um, the night, the very night that we moved back in, um, the next morning we knew that Samuel was kind of welcoming him at his home because the, morning, the very next morning um, both our electric alarm clock and our wind-up alarm clock both stopped at exactly the same time, you know, in the middle of the night. One was electric and one was wind-up, and they both, the next morning, we noticed that they were both the same time, but they had both stopped. So we thought, oh, okay, this is Samuel telling us, okay, welcome home. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, you know, so it was, you know, kind of weird and stuff. There was, I mean, there was just a lot of things, but after we got the picture and Samuel, you know, and 
uh, Danny told us that he was just there to let us know that he was there for the newborn as well as the other kids. We decided that, you know, okay, he's part of the family, so I blew the picture up to a 5 by 7 put it in a frame and put it on the bookshelf with all of the kids' pictures, you know, and then everything remained, you know, remained calm and stuff. And, you know, just occasionally we would hear things. And then um, we were told um, years later when we moved in 88, we moved because our son was born in 82. Then summer of 88, we once again thought we had the house sold, had a lease purchase, and moved to California. And we had been told that um, that ghosts can't move with you unless you invite them. And by then we had gotten so used to him and considered him part of the family that when we were leaving and I did my last walk through the house to make sure we hadn't forgotten anything, I invited Samuel to move to California with us. And the weird thing is that after we moved to California, every other member of our family saw him at one point in time in place that we bought and two places that we rented during the time that we were in there. And then after after all our kids started getting married, like Guinea, <laughs> she got married, her and her her first husband had had a son and she had a visit <laughs> from Samuel when she was with her baby. Our other daughter, Jennifer, when she got married and had kids, she had a visit from him during the night when she was pregnant with her, or had just had her her third baby. And our son, who is now 35 years old, he's got a 10-year-old son, and he had his visits from Samuel also, and even before he got married, when he moved in with a couple of roommates in a couple of different places, they all had incidences with him. So he has literally stayed with the family all these years and kind of been a part of everybody's life since then. So what was your feelings on ghosts and paranormal activity before any of this actually happened? Were you already kind of prone to believing in it, or did you not believe in it, or did you not have an opinion of it? No, we did believe in it. As a matter of fact, um, we used to watch every scary movie that ever came out. And the movie, The Amityville Horror, um, somebody had given me a book about The Amityville Horror, and I read that, and it was so scary and freaky and stuff. But then they made a movie out of it, the original movie with James Brolin. Sure. When that was advertised that it was coming out, I was thinking, oh, my God, I've got to go see that movie. So my, my husband and I and my sister and her husband went up to Reno when, where it was playing, where it was opening up, opening night of the movie being released. And we were actually got there. I was so anxious to see it that we were the first ones in line at the theater on opening day of the Amityville Horror. And we watched that. And it was so creepy and scary that, you know, and this happened before we bought this old house and had it moved out to our property. And so knowing that, how freaked out I got from watching scary movies and stuff, when my husband and my dad were first working on it and they'd start telling me things about hearing footsteps downstairs when they were working upstairs or the tools disappearing from one room to another, I thought they were joking with me because they knew how scared I got watching scary movies. And I said, look, we're going to be living in this house. Don't try to scare me and don't get me paranoid to be here. And they said, we're not. This stuff is actually happening. This stuff is disappearing from room to room and moving around and stuff. So, so we did believe. And, you know, and my husband's not one that really believes in religion or anything like that and stuff. But having lived through this and having experienced all the stuff that happened with, the, you know, with the walking around and the things happening and, um, you know, we had to believe that there's something after death anyway, regardless. Right. You know, so, um, I mean, obviously at first when all this stuff starts happening, things that kind of break the schema of life, like these things should not be happening in everything that you've been taught to believe. Like there should not be footsteps where there is not a person. Obviously it was probably scary at first, but now you talk about as if it's he's you know you've kind of welcomed this entity into your life did was it all did you accept it from the very beginning with a welcoming attitude or well we did after we got the picture and you know and it was 
saying that that was his way of letting us know that he was there to watch over the new baby as well as the other kids, the other two daughters already. You know, I thought, okay, well, we'll blow it up, put his picture up there, and see if that calms him down and see if, you know, to let him know that we accept that he's there, you know, and him not have to keep proving to us that he's there. But like I said, there's been so many incidents. As a matter of fact, the one that I had, we had moved to California, and we were living in this house, and our, when Denny was, when Denny was, um, was seeing her before her and Chris got married, he used to come over before he went to his late shift um, night. I guess he worked like at midnight at Safeway, and he would come over the house before he went to work. And so my husband and I had gone to bed, and we had a bathroom in that was through our bedroom. And then there was another bathroom between the two girls' bedrooms, and our son used to come into our bedroom and use our bathroom, you know, when he was, when he was like about, I don't know, eight or something like that, six or eight. But um, one night, my husband and I had gone to bed, and Chris hadn't left for work yet, or, or we thought he had, hadn't left yet, because we had our bedroom door shut, and our bathroom door was shut, and I woke up when I heard the toilet flush. And my husband was still in bed, and I thought, oh, it must be Scotty. Scotty must have come in, you know, from bed and to use our bathroom, which he did. And so I got up on my elbows, and I waited for him to come out and just to look. And when I looked, and it was pretty dark in our room, but it wasn't our little six- or seven-, eight-year-old son. It was a adult-sized person. And oh, I, God. And I couldn't see who it was through the dark, but I started to think that Chris, our daughter's boyfriend at that time, had come in to our bathroom to use them. I'm thinking, why would he come in our bedroom and use our bathroom when we're in bed? And as I started to say something, this figure disappeared through the bedroom door. Oh, my door gosh. Open. He just, so that's how I knew it wasn't Chris. I knew it wasn't <laughs> Well, obviously, you could rule that and one I out. Thought, okay, okay, I'm convinced. He moved here. He did move to California with us. Now, what can you, you tell know, me so about... Like said, uh, each place... One of our family members has had experiences of seeing him um, at the different places that we've lived. So we did know, and then like I said, as they grew up and had kids, he has made himself known to all of them. And even my son's friends, you know, they knew about the story about Scotty and everything, and, you know, they are with the ghost and everything, and they were all fascinated by it and stuff. But they all had incidences where they got locked out of their house and the key wouldn't work, and they couldn't get in, and then eventually they did, and eventually it wouldn't let them in. But they've all had, you know, so even his friends have experienced have experienced Samuel, um, you know, in the not-so-much-flesh, but have had their experiences with him, and they're all, you know, they're all believers. It's like, oh, my God. So <laughs> on the... Fact, on... His wife, his wife, the first time he spent, she spent the night with, with Scotty at his apartment where him and his roommate were, they were the only ones there, and she woke up in the morning and had purple ink markings on her. And there was no purple pen anywhere in the house. She woke up, and she had this and tried to figure out where this stuff came from. So um, she kind of got an early, you know, early education oh, wow. about Samuel following the family around. So what can you tell us? Because, like, in the... Um in the segment, they, they start to profile some of the people who rented the house after you guys had moved out, the Robinson family. Um, now, yeah. they, they obviously had a totally different experience with with uh, right. entities in that house, and it wasn't necessarily yeah, of the, the malevolent kind. The was Danny, when, when, um, when we moved to California, um, we well, like I said, when we moved to California, and I invited Samuel to move with us, and we didn't know at that time whether he had or not. So we had um, we had put the house up for sale, and what happened was the people who were buying it lost their financing, and so we ended up with a empty house, a rent, a mortgage to pay, and rent in California. And my husband had broken his shoulder and wasn't able to work. And so we were stuck with the house being empty and stuff. And so one of the realtors um, that we had gone ahead and listed with um, 
because these people had flaked out on us and lost the financing, we had to get a realtor to relist the house. And this gal decided to put some renters in, which was the Robinsons. She decided to rent the house to them, to these people, while she was trying to sell the house. Apparently, she was friends with the realtor, or these people were friends with the realtor or something. But they ran into this family who had five kids, the Robinsons. Oh, wow. And, and they moved in. Uh, we weren't happy with the gal, with what she had done, the listing and everything. But her listing was about to expire, and these renters were in there. And we relisted with the agent that had sold my parents' property uh, a couple years earlier. And so she went out to put her new sign up there um, instead of the other real estate place. And so she, when she went out there to put her real estate sign up as taking over the listing, she saw the Robinsons and met with them and said, and saw that they were moving out. And they had only moved in two, two and a half months earlier. And so when she was putting her sign up, she asked um, the guy, um, I can't remember what his name is, Mona, and I can't remember what Steve. his name was. Steve, yeah. Anyway, um, she asked, dude, she said, so you guys just moved in a couple months ago. Why are you moving out so fast? And he goes, because my wife is scared to death to be in this house and said, you know, there's something going on here. And he says, I don't believe in any of that stuff, but her and the kids are terrified and stuff. And so we didn't know what was happening, but the realtor called us and said, you need to get a hold of your friend Danny again, the psychic, and find out what's going on because these people are moving out because apparently they've been terrorized by whatever's going on there. And she said, I thought you told me Samuel moved with you. And I said, well, I invited him. I assumed he did, you know, we've had encounters with him already, you know, that have seen him in, you know, in California or had things happen with him. And so I was able to get a hold of Danny and he told me when I told him what had happened that I had gotten a call from this realtor and he said, um, he said, well, first of all, let me stop you right there. He goes, that is not Samuel there at the house. He said... Samuel went to California with you, and he didn't know anything about, you know, he didn't know that we had asked him to go with us or anything. He just said, he just knew that we had moved to California. He said, Samuel moved to California with you. He went with you. He said, that is not him there. And he said, and I said, so what's going on? And he said, people attract like spirits. And he said, right now, he said, there are at least three of them in your house now with this other family. And he said, and they are more, they are not anything like Samuel. He said they are more of the poltergeist type, angry kind of spirit, kind of ruffians is how he described them. And he said, he said, but there are at least three there. And I said, well, why? I don't understand this because we had met the gal who had lived in the house and people who lived in the house before we bought it. And I said, they never had any, any problems. And he said, he said that when Samuel was attracted to us through Jennifer and everything, he said he kind of took possession of the house, but he said when he left, he left kind of a void there that opened the door for other spirits to come in, is what he told us. And he said, and these are a lot angrier ones and stuff, but they are attracted to people like themselves. So anyway, so they moved out and... As the history of that goes, um, a couple of, uh, I don't know how long after they moved out, Steve and Mona got a divorce. And um, he had run into them, I guess, saw Mona with her new boyfriend at dinner at one of these places in Gardnerville. And he knew the guy, I guess, or knew where he lived. So he rushed out to the guy's house out at Runestroth's and was waiting for them when they got home from dinner, and he shot and killed her boyfriend. Oh, my God. He was God. able to get away and call the police, but he shot and killed her boyfriend waiting there. And so there was a big manhunt on for him in Nevada, and at the same time, or shortly thereafter, while he was on the loose, um, I don't know if anybody remembers the history of it, but there was a park ranger in Yosemite National Park that had been shot. He wasn't killed, but he was shot. And he was shot by the same caliber bullet as the bullet that killed this guy's, or Robinson, Mona Robinson's boyfriend. And so 
there was on the national news, they were looking for Steve Robinson in connection with both. They thought maybe he had fled there and gotten into an argument with the Ranger and shot him. But as it turned out, it wasn't the same. He wasn't the one who shot the Park Ranger because he was later picked up after he carjacked two different people, ran out of gas in one, then carjacked another one. And when, I, when he ran out of gas, some state troopers or something found him out of gas on the side of the road and recognized who he was and arrested him. So, so wow. that was kind of that. So that kind of explained that Danny was right about like him, you know, people attracting like spirits. And then years later, when what was the baby of Robinson's, when they moved, when they were living in our house, advanced forward, you know, I don't know, she's now 17 or 18 years old, and my sister-in-law sends us a newspaper clipping from Nevada where Mona Robinson, her oldest son Garrett, who, uh, Garrett, I think it was, or anyway, the two boys that were in the Unsolved Mystery show that right. we're talking both of the oldest one at least and maybe the other one too but the one that was the baby when we were there um when they were living there was now 18 years old and the four three or four of them the mom and one one or two sons and the daughter were all arrested for a big meth bust and drug bust oh wow there so it was like he was right about people attracting like spirits must have been something about that house, too, because that house seemed to be kind of like the cornerstone of the spirit world, you know, like... Well, yeah, and, and the, the world, the, um, the newspaper that I was saying that gave us the most, in, the most information about the history of the house was, was also kind of weird because um, in the article... They had tracked it down through records, tax assessor records or something, to find out the history of the house. And we found out that a man by the name of William S. O'Brien had built the house in 1870. And um, he was part of a... Um, how it happened was this guy, William S. O'Brien, and this guy named Flood, they owned a bar in San Francisco. And when they hit the... Comstock load up in Virginia City, Flood talked O'Brien into sell for them to sell their their business in San Francisco and invest in the mines up in Virginia City. So they did that and they went and bought mining claims up there. And William S. O'Brien built this house for himself. This just little modest two story, you know, little country Victorian. It wasn't anything special or anything. But it was built in eighteen seventy and then Five years later, there was a big fire that burned out a lot of Virginia City. And that same year, in 1875, for some reason, that house was lifted off its foundation and moved a block or two down the street. And they don't know why. They've never been able to figure out why this house, which was just a plain Jane little two-story, why it was moved. Well, from there, in the early 1890s, it was moved by, um, they had like logs that they rolled this house down down the, the um, down the mountain into Carson City, and it was moved to Carson City and relocated there, I think, in 1892. And that's where we found it to buy the house. Well, anyway, the, William S. O'Brien, who had had the house built, when they had, he had made his fortune, he decided to go back to San Francisco. So he sold his house, moved back to San Francisco, and built a mausoleum for himself for when he died. Well, according to this newspaper article, um, he actually died on May 2nd, 1878. And they said that during the Depression, some, you know, when people were homeless and starving and everything, some itinerants, they said, broke into his mausoleum and took up residence there for shelter. So that was one aspect that his grave had been desecrated. This was the guy who originally built the house. But the key factor in that, that we were kind of trying to figure out whether it had anything to do with all the stuff that was happening for us, was that it was exactly a century to the day that he died. Yeah, they mentioned that in the it show. Was, yep. It was May 2nd, 1978, when we decided to buy the house. Wow. And it was through this article years later that we found, that saw that it was exactly a century to the day that we decided to buy the house from his death. 
So we didn't know if that had anything in the fact that his that his mausoleum had been broken into at some point in time in the 20s, whether us moving the house again or whatever had anything to do with, you know, or the fact that it was a century from the date of his death. So we were just, you know, we thought that was just really coincidental, but we never figured out whether that had anything to do with it. So, so was there anything on the Unsolved Mysteries segment, um, as far as the story goes, was there anything on there that was um, maybe inaccurate, or was there anything that was different on the, sh- on the segment than what actually happened, or was there more? I'm sure um, there was more that happened. No, but. most of it was, was, most of it, I mean, everything from our part was accurate, but we, they also allowed me, well, well two things. One that I wanted to say that... Um, that I was the one thing I was disappointed about the show was that um, they left out a piece of information that made it look like we might be just kind of Looney Tunes or something, and that was the thing about the picture being taken off of a TV screen. Yeah, the guy had mentioned. I remember that. So what happened on that was we had already they had already done their interview with me, and and uh, you know I had told them my story, and then they did some reenactments and stuff, and then. Part of my interview was me coming back on in response to what this guy had said because they told me that they had sent, while we were, you know, after the first day of our filming, they had had the, the picture and the negative. Um, they had had it sent down to this guy um, who was the one that they were talking to. They had it sent down to him because he does special effects in Burbank and Hollywood. And that's his that's his thing. He and they had him examine the negative and the picture, and asked him. So could this be a scam? Is what they asked him. And they sent him the picture. They sent him the negative, and told him, you know, what the story was. And they said, could this be a scam? And he he told them that he said. Because I'm in this special effects industry, and this is what I do for a living, he said, I could pull off a scam like this. He said, that, that is a fact, because, because that's what I do. And he goes, and here's what I'd need. He said, I would need a large screen TV and special camera and stuff that has, or I guess the TV was supposed to have some kind of, I don't know if it was the camera or the TV, but something that would have freeze frame capability to freeze the picture on the TV screen. He said, and then I'd need this special kind of camera or whatever to take a picture of that. And, you know, and then from there was fine. He said, I could do this. I could do this with a big screen TV, freeze frame, take the picture with my camera and then present it and say, yeah, it's a ghost. He said, I could do that because that's the industry I'm in. He said, and this was, he was interviewed in 1990, in November of 1990, which was when we were filming the show. He said, the only problem is this picture was taken in January of 1982 when none of the equipment that I would need to pull off a scam now even existed at that time. And that was the part of his interview that they left, and they told me what he had said. They showed me his interview. And that was the point, but they left that part out of his the part that they filmed. They oh, I see. the fact that the equipment he would need to pull off that of kind of a scam in 1990 did not exist in 1982 when the picture was actually taken. And they left that off, so it left, so they kind of leave it, you know, at the end where Robert Stack comes down and he says, it's up to the belief, you know, it's whether you believe or not, who's, you know, do you believe or not. Right. And stuff, and that was the part I was disappointed with because it left it looking like we had just taken a picture off a TV screen, which I'd never, you know, even thought about ever doing. And the fact that this picture had run in every newspaper in the state of Nevada and nobody recognized him ever. Nobody ever was able to figure out. And the fact that he was from back sometime in the olden days of Virginia City when he lived there, you know, or something. But they did say that um, the original place that the house was built wasn't next to the Virginia City Cemetery, but there was a graveyard, a small graveyard near where the house was built. And it wasn't, and Samuel, our Samuel was not William S. O'Brien. It was not the guy who originally built the place. 
So, um, you know, so it's weird. But as far as the people, the story, um, because it was our story initially, and then because the Robinsons lived in there, the thing that was weird about that, which connects the whole thing, is that the Robinsons, their oldest son, um, I got to sit in and listen to their interview. I was the only one that got to go in and watch while they were being interviewed to hear what happened to them during their time over there, those two and a half months. And the oldest son had come home from, from school, rode the bus home, and he was the only one home. And he said he went in the house, and he said that he started hearing this noise upstairs. And he said he went upstairs into one bedroom, and the noise would stop there and would start in another bedroom. And then it would stop, and then you'd go in that bedroom, and it would stop there, and then it would go into another room upstairs. And then it would stop there, and he started getting scared. So he said he came down the stairs, and as he was coming down, he heard humming in three-part harmony. Yeah, they show that on the segment, and, yeah. And he said that he got really scared, and so he said he ran out the door, and as he went out the door out to the where the gate was at the end of the yard, he said he turned the, the screen door started slamming, open and closed, and then he said he got really scared, and then he said this man's face appeared in one of the bedroom windows, which was our old bedroom, on the right-hand side. And he said, and he closed his eyes and opened them again because he thought he was seeing things. And then the same face appeared instantly in the other window on the other side. And you would have had to have gone through two doors and across the hallway to get to that other window. But he said just in an instant, he vanished from one and appeared in the other. And so he told his parents about this. And they had kind of known about, uh, they started asking the neighbors about this when this happened. Um, he called his mom and, or grandmother and she told him to just get out of the house when this, you know, that's why he ran out and saw this. But anyway, he waited outside until his parents got home. And um, so they started asking the neighbors about if there was anything weird going on with this house. And they talked to the neighbor who had done the newspaper article for the Halloween edition. It was the original start of this story getting out. And um, she told him about that, and she had the picture still that they ran in the newspaper and asked him if that was the same guy he saw, which was Argos, Samuel, and said, is this the man that you saw in the window? And he said, no, this guy that I saw had silver hair and a red cape. And we're thinking, well, that sounds kind of, you know, flaky, you know. So, so you know, it just kind of sounded kind of weird. But when... Um, when we read this article, um, it kind of, like I said, brought it all full circle because when we had read the article about the, um, from the Las Vegas Review Journal, and we found out that William S. O'Brien, you know, became one of the silver kings in all the history books. He was the one that built the house in 1870. He was one of the, considered one of the four silver kings of the contract road in Virginia City and was very high society. And it said in this article that his trademark, because he used to go to the opera that they had in Virginia City back there, and his trademark was that he had silver hair and a red cape that he wore to the opera. <laughs> so the one that he saw was apparently the original owner <laughs> of the house. And so this kind of brought it all for a circle because we had never talked to these people. They never, we never, they never knew anything about this article we had in this newspaper because it was long after we'd moved, you know, to California that those conversations took place and those newspaper articles hit and stuff. So it all tied together that, you know, that this stuff happening. But the, but the wife, Mona Robinson, they said that, they were laying in bed one night, and this is what her husband had told our realtor was, or this is what she said when we heard the interview, but apparently what had happened was that she was laying in bed and kept hearing this evil kind of growling noise behind their headboard, and she was trying to wake her husband up, and he wouldn't, and she heard somebody call her a bitch yeah. while she was in bed. And so there were, you know, they had a lot of weird things happening, and their son, also, their second youngest son also had been kind of the same thing with our daughter, because our daughter, Jennifer, at one time, after, you know, after the incident with him, you know, um, well, before she actually saw him, there was an incident 
where um, she was up there arguing in bed and stuff, and Jenny went in to check on her to find out what was going on because she was going, would you stop that? I just, this isn't fair. I don't like this or something like that and was ranting. And Jenny went in to check on her and asked her what she was doing. She says, something keeps lifting, trying to lift me up out of my bed. And she goes, oh, you probably just rolled over on your teddy bear or something. And she put her hands on her hips or something when she got, because she took her blanket, was going to go downstairs and get, because she couldn't sleep. Because she told Denny something kept trying to lift her out of her bed. And she said, oh, you probably just rolled over on your teddy bear or something. And she put her arms, I guess, on her hands on her hips and said, my teddy bear can't lift me up out of my bed. <laughs> so we had this one incident with her. And then when we were listening to the kids' interview, it turned out, that one of their kids, the entire bed, had tried to lift up on him with him in it. So, you know, like I said, they had had other instances, you know, themselves and stuff, but we had gotten to listen to some of their stories, and that's why the kids were terrified, too. And so they got where they were all sleeping downstairs. They wouldn't let the kids sleep upstairs. That's why they only lasted there for about two and a half months. So did you, uh, when you were, like, on the set or whatever, when y'all were filming, did you ever get a chance to meet Robert Stack? No, no, we asked about that. You know, we asked if they would, you know, if we would be, and they said, no, he just does the promo for him. But he does all his filming in Burbank or Hollywood. Oh, bummer. He doesn't do any, you know, anything like that. But um, but we, made, we met a bunch of really, really awesome people during the filming. Um, Michael Palazzolo was the, um, was the producer of the show, and he originally, when we were talking to him, he was originally... Um, a backup dancer on Grease 2. Oh, my goodness. For him to see, looking at the rerun to see if we could picture him in there. <laughs> and um, his buddy, Dan Gomez, was the director of the show. And, and it became really one of their, you know, one of their favorite shows. We, we met a, the whole cast and crew were just comical and were playing. They were, everybody was playing practical jokes on each other. And, um, you know, it was just it was just really a, you know, a really fun time and stuff, and one guy that they had hired out of Reno was their production assistant, they were sending him on all the errands, like, to go get more film or to go get, like, the picture, the negative and stuff to set, go up to Reno to have it FedEx or, you know, flown down to the guy in Hollywood to review, and um, he was being sent all over the place and doing all this stuff, and when they kept filming one day, they had left some stuff upstairs. And they told this guy, he was like young, he was like about 27 years old or something, and, and they told him to go upstairs and get some equipment that they had left up there. And he's like, you mean I have to go up there by myself? <laughs> <laughs> they were all getting creeped out by the story and everything. And um, there was a, um, the guy that did, his name was Bob McCarth MacArthur or McCarthy or something like that. Anyway... Him and his son did the special effects for the show and did the, like, lifting Jennifer up and set it, you know, the little girl playing Jennifer to do the, you know, all the special effects and stuff. And um, we, we were talking to him, and he was talking to us about other shows that he had done, uh, like he had done the movie Haunted Hollywood, the special on that, and he had done all the Beastmaster series, and special effects of those, but he was telling us about other stories that through Hollywood, doing the haunted Hollywood thing that he had encountered, and about the UFOs in Roswell and being a cadet when that whole thing happened and being on guard there at the place, and just had some really interesting stories. So he himself really believed in all of this stuff, the supernatural and, you know, paranormal and everything like that. And so we had had some really good, you know, conversations with people who were really true believers, you know, in this stuff. And as it turned out, this was, it, um, they were so, all of the crew was so impressed with our story and everything that um, we found out they selected our show to be on the 100th anniversary, the 100th show special that they had. It was oh, one cool. of three or four pictures. Uh, Stories of their favorite stories that they did for their hundredth episode and stuff. So, so anyway, it was you know it was really cool. But like I said, we we accepted him, accepted him as part of the family, and and he's continued to prove that he's you know been with the family and was there for our family. And believe me, our family's been through a lot of stuff over the years, and 
you know, don't know whether he's been part of the part of the factor helping us through get through things, you know. So ever since the show, everything, uh, everything as far as uh, the you know the ghosts and all that kind of stuff, it's been. Has it calmed down? Has it stayed the same? Do you still hear bumps in the night? Yeah, like I said, it's got like like the thing with the water that we had, where I heard the toilet flush and the guy kind of disappeared through the thing. There was another incident with with Jennifer when she was. Um, I don't remember if, if she was pregnant or her. I think her her baby, her youngest daughter, was a baby then had just, you know, was just a newborn. But um, she woke up, Jennifer woke up in the middle of the night, and everybody was asleep, and the two kids were, you know, her other two kids were just little kids, but she woke up in the middle of the night, and the bathtub had been plugged, and was both faucets were turned on full blast, and when she woke up, the tub was just getting ready to, to blow over in the middle of the night. Oh, my gosh. So... You know, so that was another incident with water that had respect to water that happened to her, and there was no explanation for it other than that Sammy was there letting him know that she was he was there for the new baby too, and we kept. <laughs> you know, so so you know it's been quiet. Uh, a lot of times things happen, you know, and at Scotty, our youngest now, he's the last one to have had numerous encounters, like seeing him standing at the foot of his bed or somebody standing there in the shadows at the foot of their bed and and the little boy, um, the baby, when he was still a baby, his walker, they'd come in three or four times, the walker would be out in the middle of the room in the middle of the doorway, not where it was left the night before, and, and their son, when he got to be a couple of years old, he said he saw somebody in his room too, so, you know, so we figure he's following is going to be generational you know? oh no <laughs> so i mean that's all we can conclude because there's been no other explanation other than you know after being told that he's there to watch over our family and it's like each time you know somebody has an addition of family and they're all grown up too so well, um, I, I gotta say, it's funny, uh, just the, the picture um, that they showed in the segment um, of the old man or, or whatever, um, it, it looked so similar to the album cover to uh, Phil Collins' But Seriously album. I was sitting there going, oh, no, that's a Phil Collins, uh, a, a picture of Phil Collins they got there. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know it wasn't, but it looked very similar yeah. to that album cover. It was, it was just a little funny side note that I thought I'd mention. Yeah. Um, but no, anyway. Well, the only thing is, like, we, you know, we've been, like I said, been hearing Denny and Greg were telling about all the stuff that they've heard. And the weird thing about it is that Jennifer, um, who attracted the ghost in the first place, um, she went with her two daughters last summer to Nevada um, to spend a week with our, her youngest daughter's grandmother, um, or step-grandmother, and um, at a at a timeshare unit. And so they took one day to meet with my sister and go out to the old house because Jennifer hadn't been out back there in years. So my sister and my two granddaughters and my daughter, Jennifer, all went out there last year and last summer and took pictures of the house. And she was just showing me here because they were here for Easter today. And she was showing me the pictures they took in front of our old house. And Denny was saying how there's all this stuff on the internet saying that the house was so horrible that they had to destroy it and there's nothing but a crickety old staircase left and a basement. Well, it wasn't a basement. There was never a basement there. We moved the house out and the foundation, block, cinder block foundation was put underneath it and then the house was lowered back on it and stuff. So, you know, it's like, okay, I guess nowadays anything is okay and fair game to say about anything, even, you know, if it's not true, anybody can throw their two cents worth out there. And that was, that was my only concern about the fact that there's all of this, you know, non-truthful stuff going on about that, you know, and, you know, we don't know um, who's, you know, who's talking. We do know that when I took, when my husband and I took our two granddaughters out there in 27, or 2011, we took her, them out there to see the house. That was the first time they had ever been out there in Nevada to see it. And the people that we had sold it to we're still living in it, and they let us go through the whole house and take pictures and everything. So it was still there, and as of last summer, it was still there. So, you know, people saying, oh, it was such an evil house, it was destroyed, and, you know, and all this other stuff. So, you know, it's kind of 
like, no, that's not really true. And yeah. it's still there, and, you know. And well, um, I, I guess that's all that uh, all the questions I had for you. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me about this and shed some light on some of the stuff, you know, more in depth about what happened because yeah. I'm always, I'm all, you know, I would love to talk to like everybody who I talk about on our podcast and kind of figure out more information because, you know, they just brought the show back to Amazon Prime. So um, I know I've been binge watching uh, the old Unsolved Mysteries shows and it, it's, it's nice to catch up with the people who are actually on the show and just kind of see yeah. what they've been up to and kind of, you know, more because I know if it, it's a TV show, so they have to edit some stuff out for time and sometimes they'll you know yeah. cast people in different lights and all that stuff so it's kind of nice to get it straight from the source and all that yeah but well, um like i said we just i told i told Denny, Denny and greg i said well it sounds like our house our story has become an urban legend and anybody can contribute to it and make it bigger and farther and just you know off in all directions than what it was but you know, it was it was a you know it was an experience that we'll never forget and it was scary at times and you know and but, you know, we made it through and we found out what it was about. And, and the house, as it turns out, was a very, you know, not the house itself, but the guy who built it was very historical and one of the richest people ever to come out of the Comstock. You know, so it's a, you know, it has history in the whole, you know, thing about it. And stuff. Mm-hmm. It's in all the history books. And so it's William S. O'Brien. And, you know, they teach that in school. As a matter of fact, I was told that the kid the one who saw the guy in the window wearing the red cape, mm-hmm. the, silver ha- the silver cape, um, we were told that he was in school one year, uh, I don't know, shortly after that, he was in his um, elementary school class, and they were doing history, and they were doing Nevada history, and it was studying the Comstock era, and he opened the book up in the library or something, and there was a picture of the man in there, William S. O'Brien, as one of the Comstock kings. And he freaked out at school, from what I understand. Oh, wow. That's the guy I saw in the window, you know. So, you know, so it is, um, like I said, it kind of came full circle. We found out, you know, what, you know, it was valid, stuff that we didn't know about and that they didn't know about that turned out to be true, you know, by just, by history's sake, so. All right, well, that was the interview. Uh, hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, it was. I hope everybody gained some uh, nice little details from that interview that that you did not get um, on the on the actual segment. Uh, thank you, Suzanne and Greg and um, and Denny and uh, Jennifer and all the other people in the family there. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you talking to me, and um, I'm sure Mike appreciates it. And uh, yeah. 